Well, as Pastor Charlie shared, we had an awesome week at Ignite. Our 6th through 12th graders getting together every night this week, open up, opening up our Bibles, talking about the future, and we weren't trying to forecast 2030 or 2040. We weren't even really necessarily talking about eschatology in the sense most of us would think about it. We were talking about what theologians would call personal eschatology. What is your future? We spent the week talking about heaven and hell together. And like last summer, I wanted to take something that we talked about at Ignite and share it with the whole church, partly to show we're we're not talking about kid stuff. When we get our uh, young men and women together, we want to dig deep into God's Word and The other reason it was on my heart to talk about this particular topic is, yes, we're going to talk about something intense today, to give you fair warning. But we're going to talk about something important. We're going to talk about something that I don't think is talked about enough. It's often ignored because it's not things that are comfortable to talk about. I think it's also important to talk about it because they are things that are often questioned When many people walk away from church, walk away from the faith, they leave asking questions or saying that they're leaving because of questions about what we are going to talk about today. Today, I want to take a special Sunday to just open up our Bibles, look at some various passages. We'll be back in John chapter 7 in two weeks. We'll have a guest uh, next week. But today, I want us to think biblically about death and hell. Think biblically about death and hell. And hell. It's not comfortable to talk about. Not a lot of people are talking about it, but if we're honest, a lot of people are asking questions about it. So, what does the Bible say? And I think it's a conversation worth having. I mean, if I knew that you had cancer, do you think it'd be right for me to tell you? Or do you think I should just take the approach, yeah, that might be an awkward conversation. I'll just kind of let them live and enjoy, enjoy things. And, you know, ignorance is bliss. Would that be the right strategy? I don't think so. I think it'd be best to talk about it. That might not be comfortable, but hey, maybe if we talk about it, maybe if we're aware of the problem, we can also together become aware of the solution. We can find out if there is a cure. See, not everybody in the room here this morning has cancer, but every single person in the room here today is going to die. I don't know how. I don't know when. Some of you, maybe it might be this week. Many of us, it might be decades into the future. We don't know. But should we ignore it? Should we just try to, ah, I don't want to think about that until it gets closer? I think we should talk about it. Not because it's so fun to talk about, but if we talk about the problem, maybe we'll also find the solution. So I want you to buckle your seatbelts with me and let's dive into God's Word to see what it says and to see how it can help us about these uncomfortable but very serious realities that I think we should think about. We'll look at several different passages and open up our Bibles together, but I want to start just with this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Let's say I gave you a choice this afternoon of, hey, so-and-so is having a party at at their house, and uh, I've sampled some of the barbecue. It's really good, and the desserts and the pool is going to be open, bring your kids, it's just going to be a great, great time. Or, if that's not your thing, we have a funeral service uh, that we'll be getting together for. Which which one of those naturally do you feel drawn toward? 
you want to go to the party, right? You want to enjoy the good food. You want to have a good time. But what we see here in Ecclesiastes is he's basically saying it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Why? Because your life doesn't end at a party. Your life ends with you in a box in front of the room and all your friends and loved ones there to think about you and your life. Death, the house of mourning, the funeral, that's the end of all mankind. And he's saying, hey, if we're wise, we'll take it to heart. We'll think about it and we'll let it have an effect on our lives. Let's just put this down for point number one and then we'll dig more into what the Bible says about it. But number one, think more about the reality of death. Think more about the reality of death. Maybe sometimes you you see a friend post something on Facebook or you're reading an article about a movie or a book or some kind of story and you'll see these words often in all caps. says, spoiler alert, right? What are they saying? They're saying, hey, don't read this any farther if you haven't, if you don't know the story that I'm talking about because otherwise I don't want to spoil the ending for you. I remember one time with my small group, we were talking about uh, something that was on TV, and I was like, isn't that the TV show where this happens? And I, they, everybody started looking at me like, that doesn't happen until season four. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, right? They, everybody was getting mad at me for spoiling the ending. Well, that's maybe something we should be sensitive to others about when it comes to stories or movies, but that doesn't really work well with life, okay? We already know what the ending is. The ending for everybody that's lived is death. The statistics are still pretty impressive. One out of every one people ends up dying. But we live in a society that's probably the healthiest and safest society that's ever been in the existence of humanity. And therefore, many of us live lives that are very, very sanitized from the reality of death. Most people in this room, you have never actually seen a human being die. And if you're like, oh, I have, for most of you, your experience is movies. It's fake. You haven't seen a real human being passing away. Many people probably have even, never even seen a, a dead body before. I mean, even me, growing up as a pastor's kid since I was four years old, right, I never even was at a funeral service with the casket there at the graveyard until I was 22 years old. Even that is becoming less and less common in the society that we live in. For many of us, death is very much out of sight, out of mind. And I think if we really dig into Scripture, and we're going to see some other passages, I think that's just the way the devil wants it. He doesn't want us thinking about the reality of death. He doesn't want us thinking about statistics like this, that 2.8 million Americans die every single year. You do the math, that's almost 8,000 Americans every single day. You do more math on that, that's about one person every 10 seconds, six people a minute. And so if I've been up here talking for over five minutes, that means statistically over 30 people have passed away in the United States of America since I've started talking. And this is all numbers, you know, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, this is the way it is all the time. But most of the time, we don't even think about it. We're not even aware that it's going on. Occasionally, events happen that get our attention, right? There's an explosion in Lebanon that kills over 100 people. There's some 
natural disaster or a hurricane or like in 2004, there's a tsunami that results in over 200,000, just think about that number for a minute, 200,000 people losing their lives. Or sometimes it's not so much the number, but finally it happens to somebody that's close to us and we think about it. There's a cemetery a mile from my house. I drive past it all the time, but it's just this tiny, small cemetery. The only structure on the property is this little shed in the corner, but it's always there. I wonder how many people drive past that every day and never think twice about it. Even it took me preparing this this message to get on my bike and ride over there and actually look at what was there. And even it struck me, I was preparing to speak to the youth at our church, and I opened the gate of the cemetery, and I walk in the first tombstone with somebody that lived to 88 years old. The next three tombstones, 18 years old, 17 years old, 22 years old, when they passed away. That people just drive by it all day, every day. Something we need to think about, we need to realize that's a reality before it hits close to home. As a pastor, I see many people, it seems like, They don't think about these things until it is close to them. And then they start to question, well, how could God let this happen? I want you to be ready for that question before it comes up. What is going on with death? Why does everybody die? And let's ask that question together. And even to help answer that question, let's take our Bibles and let's open them up to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. And let's go to Genesis chapter 2. We know what happens in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in chapter 2, we see more detail of God's creation of Adam. And God creates Adam from the dust of the ground. And he plants this garden, the Garden of Eden, and he puts the man in it. We'll see it in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So even, hey, before you moan about going to work tomorrow morning, work was pre-fall. That, that's for free. To work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3, and spoiler alert, except I think we already know what happens They eat the fruit. Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit of the tree. But then you might say, but wait a minute. They didn't drop dead on the spot. How how does that work? Well, one way, there there are multiple senses of death, even that we see in Scripture. On this most fundamental, death is a separation. And they might not have experienced physical death or of the soul being separated from the body in Genesis chapter 3, but they sure experienced spiritual death. For the first time, Adam and Eve being separated from God and not enjoying that communion that they had with Him. But not only that, the process of physical death began in Genesis 3. Look at what God says to Adam in Genesis 3, 17. It says, And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That's why you're going to moan before going to work tomorrow. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. It's going to be hard. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. 
For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That was when the process of physical death started, that Adam was created from the dust, and he eventually died, and we know the body then decays, and we return to dust. And ever since Adam, that's what's happened to everyone. The Bible gives us two exceptions, Enoch and Elijah taken straight to heaven, but we see more than two examples of people that have died twice. I mean, think of Lazarus and other people that were raised to dead throughout, raised from the dead throughout the Bible. So the whole one out of every one people, that stat's still going pretty strong, despite the two exceptions. And so we have to ask, when somebody dies, and we start asking, man, how is this happening? Why is this happening? We need to start preparing ourselves now for when that happens to us or someone close to us and realize what's happening is exactly what God said would happen. When people die, when 8,000 Americans die every day, it's exactly what God said would happen. And sometimes it hurts us so much more, obviously, when it's someone we're not expecting it or it's somebody young. But God said, this is the world that's going to be after Genesis chapter 3. And when we start to understand that, when we see death, It should take us from being, God, how could you do this? And it should make us think more about the gravity and the ugliness of sin, right? Death is in, I mean, on some level, we we can be thankful that death is somewhat not a part of our everyday life because it's an ugly thing. It's a painful thing. And when we experience close up, we should say, wow, God, through the curse, has left us a very vivid haunting picture of how ugly and painful sin is. That's what we should think of when we see death. When, you, when death strikes close to you, we shouldn't be mad at God. We should be frustrated at sin and seeing how awful it is. We should realize the gravity of that and we should think more that death is the reality. Death is the end of us all. Ecclesiastes isn't the only place that talks about this. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12 This is Moses praying. He says, so teach us to number our days so that we can be really grumpy for all of them. Is that what he says? No, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. He's saying, when I think more about, hey, my life isn't going to last forever, it's actually a helpful thing. We start to think more importantly, right? As now somebody that's been a pastor for over a decade, I've been to more than my fair share of funerals. And I personally have found those are some of the most edifying experiences of my life. Because I've seen, I mean, I've seen all the funerals, the good, the bad, the ugly. And it gets you thinking. You go to some funerals and you're like, this, this is what I want. I I, want to be remembered like this person is. I want to be the person of integrity that this person is remembered for. And then you see the funerals where that was not true. You're thinking, man, this is, this is not what I want. And the living lay it to heart, and you get a heart of wisdom from reflecting on the end. And you're reminded, I don't know when that's going to happen. James chapter 4 says that life is a mist. Do you have one of those, like, essential oil diffusers? If you don't, one of your friends in the church does, uh, and you've seen it there on the coffee table, kind of spitting up its little oily steam and fragrance into the room, Right? And you look at it, right, there's like two inches of visible vapor that's rising out of that thing. And then it's gone. It's a good picture of our life. It's this really short thing, poof, and then it's it's gone. That's how the Bible tells us our life is. And it says if we realize that, we'll get wisdom and we won't waste it. 
we'll use that life well when we think more about the reality of death. Death is the result of sin, and it's not always, hey, this person died because of this sin in their life. No, we have all sinned. The wages of sin is death. Okay, so what comes next? What about after death? Well, the Bible gives us answers there. Let's start in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. After we die, there is judgment. Let's dig into more of what the Bible says about that. If you're there in Genesis, just flip your Bible right over to the other end of it, and let's go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. And if you were to study eschatology, we would see judgments, and it seems that there are various different judgments that possibly happen at various different times throughout the Scripture. But it seems that here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it's the last one, the final judgment, what theologians call the great white throne judgment. Why is it called that? We'll look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that place is described more in verse 10, if you just jump back up a little bit, where it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here we get to see a little bit of how the Bible describes judgment in a place that we would commonly today refer to as hell, even though there are different terms in the Bible like the lake of fire or Hades that we see. But that it is haunting to see that phrase, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What does that mean? And this is the book of Revelation. And that book, isn't that book kind of hard to understand? Is it maybe figurative? Jesus, he was a kind, compassionate guy. What, what does he say about all of this? Great question. Let's look at it. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus describes judgment. And let's see what he describes, and let's see if it's consistent with what we just read in the book of Revelation. Matthew chapter 25, we'll start in verse 41. Or let's start in verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man, Jesus, comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. And it, it's a judgment, and when we get down to the goats, in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And he describes their sin, which in many cases was a selfishness and a lack of generosity. No food for the hungry, no water for the thirsty, no welcome for the stranger. And then he describes finally their judgment in verse 46 when he says, And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. And see here, it's drawing a a symmetrical comparison. Just as the righteous will go into eternal life, the wicked will go away into eternal punishment. Sounds like what Jesus is describing is very much in sync with what we read in Revelation. What's more, Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And to go through the parable quickly, the rich man dies and ends up in Hades, and the poor man dies and he ends up in heaven sitting at the table next to Abraham. And it describes an interaction where Lazarus, who is now in hell, it says being in torment, he sees Lazarus and Abraham. And in verse 24, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So, what we see Jesus, and again, it's a parable, and so as Jesus is telling a story, but it seems hard to think that Jesus would come up with such a detailed story and a parable that seems consistent with what he says other places if that wasn't true, and that's not how it was. When we really dig into what the Bible says about judgment and the judgment of hell, I think we come to the conclusion that it is eternal conscious torment. It is not a place that you want to be. And that's why the Bible says very serious things about the judgment of God. Look at Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, where it says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Point number two today, let's put it down like this. Fear God's righteous wrath. Fear God's righteous wrath. And again, I didn't choose this topic because I'm like, you know what would be really fun to talk about? No. It's not fun, it's not comfortable, and people really don't like this. I think this is why a lot of people that believe it never talk about it. And why a lot of people basically just get to the point where they say, I don't believe it. And you're going to hear people teach other things. One view that's common is a view called annihilationism. Where many Christians that would affirm this doctrine basically say, you know, hell, hell is bad. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it doesn't last forever. One leading proponent of this view is a guy named John Stott. Who he's written some really good books. If you look at the back of the worksheet, not today, but occasionally I'll recommend some. He's written a classic called The Cross of Christ that defends the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. But this is also why there's that wording on the back saying, hey, I'm not saying I agree with everything this person ever wrote. Because this is what John Stott said. He said, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable. And do not understand how people can live with it without cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. He's like, I don't know how people believe in hell. Like, I'm explaining it to you without even just you turn your feelings off 
or you go crazy. I, I don't understand that. And what I want you to notice about these different viewpoints you're going to hear is usually they start with feelings. Usually they start with, well, what feels right to me? And then maybe they get into the Bible. And that's where people that defend this view will try to say, well, sometimes it refers to God destroying the wicked. And destroying, that word means, you know, to put out of existence. Well, it can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. There's examples even in the Bible of destroy referring to, you know, ruining someone, not in a way where they go out of existence. And the bottom line is we have zero examples in Scripture that clearly make that point. That, oh yes, the wicked, they cease to exist. No passage clearly says that. We've already looked at a few different ones that give us the idea, no, it, it is eternal. Another view that's even growing in popularity is the idea of universalism. U- universalism. That it's just going to, the story has a happy ending for everyone. Everyone ends up in heaven eventually. And maybe they'll grant, you know, hey, it might take some people a little longer to get there, but everybody is going to get there eventually. There was a book written that kind of gave prominence to this view by a man who you will never see on the back of the worksheet, a pastor named Rob Bell writing a book called Love Wins. And he basically just immediately comes after what the Bible says about hell, saying, no, 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 no. And this is what he says. There are a growing number of us who have become acutely aware that Jesus' story has been hijacked by a number of other stories, stories he isn't interested in telling. And that's why I'm like, um, I don't know, when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I see what Jesus says, he actually talks about judgment and hell a lot. But never mind. Because they have nothing, these stories of hell have nothing to do with what he came to do. The plot has been lost, and it's time to reclaim it. I've written this book for all those everywhere who have heard some version of the Jesus story that caused their pulse rate to rise, their stomach to churn, and their heart to utter those resolute words, I would never be a part of that. He's saying, hey, all you people that feel like hell doesn't feel good, rock on. This is what we really believe. And what should determine our theology is our pulse rate, our stomach, and our feelings. Instead of the words of Jesus Christ. The reality is, hell doesn't feel good. And hell isn't meant to make us feel good. There is a sense in which we should fear the wrath of God and what it is. But there are fair questions to ask. That sounds intense. That does sound, you know, very extreme. Why is that? Even, you know, it's that one verse we looked at in Hebrews said, God said, it's vengeance. Vengeance is mine. What's up with that? God tells us not to seek revenge. What we need to understand, this vengeance, even if you're reading through the Bible with us, we just saw it in Psalm 94. The vengeance that God inflicts isn't the vengeance of some, you know, vindictive, hurt person. It is the righteous justice of a judge. That's what God is doing. He is not, as some people want to portray him, some cruel monster. He is a just judge. And if we stop and think about that, I think we'll appreciate the importance of a just judge. There was a man I knew growing up named Clay Robinson. He lived right down the street from my family growing up, and he went to our church. And when we moved to Texas, when I was in second grade, he was my second grade Sunday school teacher. And then uh, as I moved up and grew up in the church, by the time I got to middle school, he had switched, and now he was leading the junior high 
ministry at the church. And in addition to that, he was coaching the junior high basketball team at our small Christian school. In my seventh grade year, we went undefeated. And we were excited about that. And Coach Robinson drove one of those old VW bugs. And like the reward that he had been holding out to us all year, hey, if you guys go undefeated, I'll let the whole team pile into the VW bug and I'll take you for a drive. And so we went undefeated with the whole team. We piled into the VW bug. We went for a drive. At that point, I was one of the shortest guys on the team. So me and the other guy, we were like, you know, curled up in the fetal position in this little cubby behind the back seats. You probably didn't realize you could fit two human beings there, but you could. And we drove around the neighborhood and we went over the train tracks. Me and the other kid, we smacked our heads pretty hard against the, uh, the, the back window there. But it was a great, great time. When I was in high school and I busted my collarbone in our front yard, my parents called Clay Robinson and he ran down the street to help me out, tell me what I needed to do because he was a physician's assistant was his, was his job. And then I graduated, I moved away, and I went off and 15 years after I was in middle school, I went back to my dad's church to teach at their youth winter camp. And guess who was still there serving and leading the junior high ministry? Clay Robinson was. Well, a couple years ago, I got a text one morning from my dad, and he said, last night somebody broke into the Robinsons' house, and Clay was shot and killed. And I mean, all of us that knew him, that, that hit us pretty hard, right? We were having to then grapple with the reality of death, and why do these things happen? Well, in this case, he had been murdered. And they caught the murderer pretty easily, because it had actually been kind of a shootout there in his house when... Clay was killed, and he had shot the other man. And so he did not get very far before the authorities apprehended him. So it was very clear who the murderer was. And as I was in touch with my family and other friends from uh, back in Texas where I grew up, somebody directed me to the murderer's Facebook page. And I went there, and all that was on there was pictures of two things, guns and drugs. That's all it was. And why was the guy breaking into Clay Robinson's house? So he could steal stuff and get more money for more drugs. And so as I'm looking at that and I'm seeing pictures of him, you know, holding a gun in one hand and his tongue out with pills on it, you know, in the picture, how do you think that made me feel? How is it making you feel right now? Angry, right? Hey, wait, Clay Robinson is dead so this guy could get more drugs? That's messed up. Right? That, that's what we all feel. That's what we all think. Well, this man went, went to trial for murder. And imagine if at the end of that trial, the judge gets, you know, all rise. The judge gets up. You know, the jury says guilty. The judge responds with the sentencing, and he says, hey, everybody, I'm a really nice guy. I couldn't send somebody to jail for the rest of their life. That's intense. So, hey, do you promise not to do it again? Okay, great. Then you can go free. How would you have felt then? You would have said, that is gross injustice. That is wrong. That's what we all would have said in that moment. We would have said, no, that man deserves to go to jail for the rest of his life. We need to see when God is giving out judgment, he is being a just judge. And if God doesn't judge sin, then he's not just, then he's not good, then he's not God. And you might say, okay, well, life in jail, I get that, but hell, we're talking about eternal conscious punishment. And hey, pastor, I'm not the guy that killed Clay Robinson. 
And I'd say, that's, that's right, you're not. But here's the thing, when we get down to it, you are one of the guys responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Our sin, your sin, my sin is so serious that God could not sweep it under the rug. He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sin. Our sin is serious. Even again, hell should be a reminder of how serious sin is, and it really shows us how great God is. I heard one pastor describing hell as this this echo of the infinite goodness of God. And we see God being so good that the, the evil, just the ugliness of rejecting God for ourselves is something so heinous that in eternity in hell you see how incredibly heinous and wrong that is for humans to rebel against the one who created them, to rebel against a gloriously good God. And you know, people want to get obsessed, and the Bible doesn't give us incredible detail on what exactly it looks like, God's judgment and his wrath in hell. But what we should understand is the worst part about it is being separated from the presence of God forever. That's the worst part. And I know this is an oversimplification, but on some level, hell is God giving people what they want. They say, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. And God says, okay. And that's what they get then for eternity. And there is no going back. Our sin is serious. It's a serious offense against a holy God. It's cosmic treason. And when God gives his wrath, it's It's not just him being vindictive and petty and personal. It is the righteous wrath of a just judge. And when we understand that, we appreciate other things that are, you know, death we don't think about very much, but we talk about the love of God a lot. And we quote verses like the familiar John 3.16, for God so, what? Loved the world. And when we went through John 3 a few months ago, we tried to emphasize That's impressive, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That's why that verse is amazing. That in light of our sin and what we deserve, God sent his son. Imagine one of Clay Robinson's sons getting up at trial and saying, hey, I'll go to jail for that guy. I I I will go, I will serve his time so that he can live. That's what Jesus has done for us when we did, not only didn't deserve his love, we deserved his wrath. Jesus Christ on the cross went through death and hell so that you wouldn't have to. Point number three today, embrace God's gracious solution. And there's more time we could go into all of this, but if we really understood our own sin and how serious our rebellion against God is, we would not say, wow, hell seems really harsh. We would say, wow, how is there anybody in heaven? And the answer is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And I I read you those quotes from people that want to deny this. And again, often it starts with their feelings. And I've heard these people talk, and eventually, basically what they end up saying is, well, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. I don't know that that's a game we really want to start playing. And my first response then is, really? You wouldn't? If you created something, the most amazing thing that has ever been created, this world's humanity, 
you created something that spectacular and collectively it all turned against you, rebelled against you, thumbed their noses at you, you would just say, oh, you guys are cute. That's really what you would say? No, if I was God, I would, there would have been a flood with no ark. That's what would have happened. There would be no ark. There would be no cross. Because when we start playing that, well, if I was God, I wouldn't do that game. You know what? If I was God, I would never, ever, ever do. Give one of my sons for the sins of others. I would never, ever do that. But that's what God did for us. For God so loved the world that although we have rebelled against God, our sin is serious, he is offering free, full, and everlasting forgiveness to anyone who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And this is the 11 o'clock service. So we've got all afternoon. So we can then go in to talk about heaven and how amazing that's going to be. A perfect world, a perfect body with no unrighteousness. And again, God, we had to spend a whole night on that because the devil wants people to think about hell, not at all. And he wants people to think about heaven really, really weird. Like, go do a Google image search for heaven. It's clouds, clouds, a weird city in the clouds, and more clouds. That's what the devil wants people to think heaven is like, some really weird, really boring thing. And for some reason, there's naked babies with wings and bows and arrows, right? What's up with that? That's what he wants people to think about heaven. When no, it's going to be a a new earth. God is going to fix up this place. And the most amazing things you see in the world right now are just a taste of what he's got in store for us. That's what's going to happen. And the best part, just like the worst part of hell is being separated from God forever, the best part of heaven is going to be you get to be with Jesus for eternity. None of us deserve that. But all of us can have that through faith in Christ. Through what He has done for us. So really the most important question you could ask and answer today is, do I know where I'm going? Death is inevitable for me. Am I ready for it? And if there is any doubt in your mind, talk to somebody about that this morning. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Charlie. Talk to a friend that you know here at church. And if we know, hey, my faith is in Christ. I am trusting in Him. Then you should have no fear of death. You should have no fear of hell. But does that mean, great, I'm saved, awesome. I never have to think about death and hell again? I don't think that's true. I think we do need to think more about the reality of death. We do need to realize how I've been talking for almost 40 minutes now. That's over 200 people in America that have died since I started talking to you. Wait, we've solved the problem for ourselves. Praise God. What about everybody else? We should still be burdened about that. Point number four today, spread the cure. Spread the cure. And I want us to look at two more passages to talk about two emotions that in light of all of this, I don't think we feel enough. Because we want to put death and hell out of sight, out of mind, that there's two emotions that we don't feel enough of. And the first one we're going to see in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. This is Paul talking about his countrymen, the Israelites. 
And this is what he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul saying, I am so burdened at my countrymen who were lost that I have, it says, great sorrow. Even in Greek, it's, it's, the word before sorrow is mega, mega sorrow. And unceasing anguish, if you've been paying attention even to just the English translations, anguish, that's the same exact word that the rich man uses to describe his spot in hell. And Paul is saying, I have mega sorrow and unceasing anguish when I think about the lost people around me that don't know Christ. And because we like to put death and hell out of sight, out of mind, I think we're robbed of the compassion that we should have for those around us. I said there's 2.8 million Americans that die every year. Where are they going? Jesus said the road is narrow that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And the worst question isn't even, okay, how many of that almost 3 million people are going to end up in hell? A question that bothers me more is how many of them are going to end up in hell and no one ever really explained fully and well the gospel to them? Way too many is the answer. Way too many. And your goal needs to be that your neighbors, your coworkers, they know I'm a Christian. That's nice. Do they know the gospel? That's a better question. Do they know the gospel because they know you? And do you have enough concern in your heart to drive you to seek those opportunities, to have those conversations? It's right. Thinking about hell, thinking about death is not a comfortable thing. But it's not meant for us to be comfortable. It's meant to spur us on to action. That we should have this compassion for those around us, for the millions around us that don't know Christ, for the billions around the world that have never even heard of Christ. We're way too comfortable, is the reality. When many people need to know the good news, that yes, death is coming, hell is real, but the gospel, Jesus Christ went through death and hell so you don't have to. Isn't that good news? Are you ready? That's our job. And so we don't have nearly enough compassion. We don't have enough brokenness in our hearts. But there's also joy. This might sound shocking at first. Because we don't take death and hell seriously enough, we're also missing out on joy. What? Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And first, let me just show you a little bit of God's heart from a verse in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, 9 says... The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart in heaven right now is not, man, I can't wait to judge more people. He's saying, man, I am waiting, and the reason more people aren't dying is I want more people to turn from their sin and know eternal life. And that's what gets God excited It's three very familiar stories that all kind of have the same point in Luke 15. I was reading the first one to my two sons, my one-year-old and my three-year-old, in the, you know, 
picture children's Bible last night before they went to bed, the parable of the lost sheep. You've heard that before, right? The, the shepherd, he's counting his flock, and how many does he count? How many? 99. How many are there supposed to be? And he says, hey, 99 out of 100, that's better than I did in school. No. He says, hey, that's a problem. And he leaves the 99, and he goes, and he searches, and he finds the one. And in verse 6, he comes home. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You want to know what starts a party in heaven? When one sinner gets saved. There's rejoicing in heaven. And I'm worried because we don't think about these realities and maybe we even start to think, well, I'm pretty good, so I probably deserve the heaven I'm going to get. And we start getting off into all this bad thinking. We miss out on the joy of seeing someone else get saved. Maybe the most poignant expression of that joy is the father of the prodigal son. That's the last story in this trilogy in Luke 15. When the son comes home and the father runs to meet him, embraces him, kisses him, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, kills the fattened calf and says, hey guys, let's have a party. Why? Verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And when you see a brother or sister in Christ, when you see someone get saved, you should be showing this joy of the Father. You don't get it. This person was lost and now they're found. They were dead and now they're alive. They were on their way to hell and now they're on their way to heaven. Praise God. Let's rejoice. Let's have a party. Because we don't, we don't like to think about these things, they're not comfortable to think about, they're not comfortable for me to stand up here and talk about, but because we avoid them, I think we miss out on the depths of compassion and sorrow that we should have for the lost, and therefore we also missed out on the incredible joy that we should have as we see people turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ and experience new life in Him. Talked with the students several times trying to just get them to understand how short life is. Maybe that's an easier sell to some of you. I see a lot more gray hair here today than I was seeing all this week, talking to the middle schoolers and the high schoolers. Maybe, hopefully with some of you, there's a little more of reality of, man, this life is short. And eternity is eternity. Are you ready for it? And are we thinking rightly about how we think about the world around us. Even we've heard more death statistics this year than we've ever heard before, right? Mortality rates and all these different stats. When, despite whatever your opinions are on that, I think one of the big problems is we have never realized how high the mortality rate is all the time. I mean, in one year, it's 0.8% of America is going to die. And ultimately, it's 100%. That needs to make us think differently. Let's get wisdom from thinking about these big and important things today. And I pray it changes our lives and helps us think more seriously about the impact we're having on the world around us. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you that, Lord, even though if we're really thinking rightly, when we think about death and hell, Lord, there's a part of us that should say, yes, that's, that's what I deserve. 
God. And I pray that we even have a sense in a humble way of the ugliness of our own sin. God, that we see how offensive it is to you that even those of us who are saved realize, God, just the darkness in our own heart that, Lord, if you hadn't saved us, it's frightening to think even in this life where we would be. God, and I thank you it's, that's not the end of the story. God, I thank you that I don't just get up here and talk about death and hell without being able to say there is a solution. Jesus has died for our sins. There is no need for anyone here today to end up experiencing death and hell when we are promised life and eternity in heaven through Jesus Christ. God, I want to beg you right now, Lord, and because of your heart, you are not willing, but you're not wishing, God, that anybody in here would experience judgment. God, you want everybody here to repent. And God, so I want to appeal to your mercy and your compassion and your love right now. God, if there is anyone here this morning that has not turned from their sin and put their faith in Christ, let today be the day. God, and I pray that you would help all of us to think more seriously. Wake us up from thinking, even as Christians, falling into the trap of thinking this life is all that there is. When this life is nothing but a blink of an eye. God, help us as we go to our jobs, as we live in our neighborhoods, as we serve our families. Help us to think about what's most important this week. Give us opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people that need to hear it. And we pray that for your name's sake, you would bring a revival of people turning from their sin, putting their trust in you. And God, that even as a church, we would be able to join in the celebration right now as we see people turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ and all that we have in him. I pray that we would enjoy him this week, live for him this week, and live for eternity. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.